Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, January 10th. For the first time in 2023, I am back in CRHQ in Indianapolis. I had to tell my parents, with all due respect, I got to head home. As things are heating up in the tennis world, we've got so much content planned for all of you Cracked Rackets listeners this week. Of course, there are five tour-level events to monitor as we are one week week out from the year's first major, the 2023 Australian Open, right around the corner. As such, I want to give you all a quick preview of what content you can expect in anticipation of the year's first slam over on the Great Shot podcast feed. We're going to begin our previews of the 2023 Australian Open, as we always do. We're going to break down the men's and women's contenders, dark horses, focus on the Americans, break down the draws when they come out as well. We've got Tons of Australian Open content planned. All of that, though, is going to be over on our Great Shot podcast feed, where, by the way, you can find our top 10 2023 college tennis teams heading into the season. We previewed each of those squads over on that GSP feed as well. We'll have tons of college content on there throughout the course of the 2023 season. Of course, here on this show, the focus is going to be those five tour level events. And on today's podcast, I want to talk about the things that matter here in week two. There's so much action. It happens late at night here in the United States. As such, it's impossible for most of us to monitor everything. Thankfully, we know here at Cracked Rackets, it's our job to do that for you. We have the time to do just that. So on today's show, I want to run through each of the four tour-level events happening in Adelaide, Hobart, Auckland. Then I want to talk about the most notable results from round one of the Australian Open qualifying action, of course. Not going to break down every match. I'll be honest, I haven't watched a ton of Australian Open qualifying yet. There are four tour-level events to also monitor. I just happened to fly home from Los Angeles, and as such, I haven't dived too deep into AO qualifying. I will do so later on in the week, hoping to have Damian Coos to talk about the results perhaps on Friday when we know who the qualifiers are. But again, lots of action here in week number two. We'll talk about the things that matter on today's show. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out on this podcast is because of the support we get from all of you listeners who are probably sick of my monologues. The good news, again, we have plenty of guests coming over on the Great Shot podcast feed to break up the monotony of my thoughts. So be prepared for those episodes, I suppose. But shout out to all of you listeners who turn to us day in, day out to keep you updated on everything happening in the tennis world. We appreciate your trust. We also appreciate the trust of our dear supporters over at Tennis Point. They support tennis 
tennis players everywhere by providing the best equipment at the lowest prices. All you got to do is go to tennis-point.com today. You'll find everything you're looking for. Use our promo code CR15 upon purchase, and you'll get 15% off all sale items. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, when we look at the things that matter here in week number two, the place you have to start for the second week consecutively is in Adelaide, in particular the WTA draw once again absolutely loaded. And I typically use the live rankings as opposed to the WTA rankings. I love the fluidity of those live rankings reflecting what is happening at any given moment. That's what we need here on this show. But as of the current iteration here on Tuesday, January 10th of the live rankings, 22 of the current live top 33 players were entered in this Adelaide draw in one form or another. And that speaks to the depth, the quality of the tennis, the draw we see this week. And certainly when you look at the WTA Tour from a big picture perspective as we enter the first Grand Slam of the season, we know Iga, regardless of the fact that she lost one match, one total match at uh, United Cup, to Jessica Pagula, albeit in a two-and-two fashion, she is still an unequivocal Tier 1 contender. She has earned that benefit of the doubt coming out of 2022. But outside of that, has anyone else earned that benefit of the doubt to be an unequivocal Tier 1 player? Certainly after week number one, Sabalenka, you feel like probably has to be on a top five contender list if you're talking about the women's singles draw. And by the way, you're going to be able to hear my thoughts on who those top five contenders are this week on the Great Shot podcast feed. But, you know, maybe Sabalenka after week one. Outside of that, given Jabur's physical issues, is she like a guaranteed tier one contender? I don't think you can say that. Jessica Pagula looked great at United Cup, but look at her 2022 results. She was in the biggest rounds of every major event, but she was never able to capture that signature victory. And typically a player like that, who you know is going to get to the second week, know is going to get to the quarterfinals, not sure from there. That's typically my definition of a tier two player is Pagula by default have to be vaulted into tier number one, just given the dearth of tier one players? That's a fascinating question to ask. And certainly, again, depending on the form we see from some of these players in Adelaide, the form we've seen from them throughout the course of the two weeks, maybe there are other players who can jump into that conversation. Case in point, that's, uh, again, why this Adelaide draw is so significant, and that's why when you look at some of the matches we've seen unfold already, I'm not going to dive too deep into any specific results because there have been a lot of round one affairs, and, you know, again, if I do this for every event, this podcast ends up being four hours. we got five events to get to, but I do want to talk about the significant things I've seen so far. Again, what matters, not only from this week, but as we approach the Australian Open I think the form of Petra Kvitova matters. I think when you look at what Kvitova was able to do during her time at United Cup, only played two matches, but obviously was the only player to knock off Jessica Pagula. Kvitova getting an impressive straight set victory to kick things off 6-4 and four over Pagula. You look at her uh, second match, straight set went over Laura Siegemund. You feel like that's the sort of match she maybe as a top 20 seed will get in round number one of the event. And then she kicked things off here with a 3-5 and five win over Elena Rabakina, the key thing being she didn't face any break points throughout the course of her victory. And we talk about Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, still a working title 
three years later here on this show. But those players who are able to play with elite power that they're disruptors. It's non-negotiable. You're playing on that player in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club's terms because that power is so overwhelming. And there's no doubt the best version of Kvitova is a player who belongs in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. She's won multiple Grand Slam titles on the back of that overwhelming lefty power tennis. And it's clicking on all cylinders as of this moment here in these opening weeks of 2023. Again, the win over Pagula, you know, it was a low first serve percentage for her, but she won over 60% of her first and second serve points, fought off four of six break points against someone who is certainly a top 10 returner by percentage by eye test in Pagula on the WTA Tour. Nine of 11 break points saved against Siegemund and then didn't face a break point against Rabakina in the straight set win in Adelaide. And what was so impressive is how she's executing that serve right now. And it, it's just, it's not that she's hitting the overwhelming slice out wide on the ad side, which by the way, she has in her bag of tricks. Like that slice out wide on the ad to set up the first forehand. When she's landing that slice out wide, she's just holding serve, period. But she's also mixing in a body serve right now that I really enjoy in that lefty slice into your body, which you're just not going to see a ton of in professional tennis with the pace that she hits it with because she's also right around six feet as well. She's executing on the serve extraordinarily well through the first three matches she's played, and that's opened up everything else. It you know opens up that body serve. She just has a clean look at a first forehand. She hits her first forehand down the line, you know, as a lefty, add side to do side, extraordinarily well. Of course, she can cross you up by hitting an overwhelming with pace into your backhand wing as well. She's comfortable moving forward, even if she hasn't always been the most natural volleyer. And she's moving well also. She seems healthy. She seems fit. She seems like this offseason certainly helped her. And you look for Kvitova, who played 46 matches last year, 27-19 and 19 overall, was still a top 25 server, holding 74.4% of the time. I remind everyone, over the last 52 weeks, the average hold percentage of a top 50 WTA player, 70.7%. So she's still been a good server. I mean, it's only three matches. She held 87% of the time this season, and she's returning well. Uh, you know, that opens up the return of serve for her to take chances, be aggressive. You look at how she was able to break Rabakina in set number one and set number two in each of those sets. A couple of definitive on-the-rise return winners. She's hitting the backhand inside-in return on the ad side really well right now. And again, I think that's just a testament to her health, a testament to the footwork. She has that overwhelming pace. She has the belief. She's one of the few players, I mean, she hasn't won an Australian Open, but she's made a semifinal round there, I believe, before. I don't think she's ever made a final in Australia. No, she did back in 2019. That's it. She lost the three-set final, not a semi, three-set final to Naomi Osaka. There are only two Australian Open winners in the draw this year. Sonia Cannon, who is playing better, but is not in Grand Slam winning four, and Victoria Azarenka, who took a first-round loss in what was a really fun three-set match with Veronica Kudermatova, two players who absolutely can do some damage should they re- reach week number two of this uh, of this first slam. Excuse me. But I'm just saying, keep an eye on Petra Kvitova, who, who is not that far removed from feeling like she was going to be one of the favorites at the 2021 French Open with how well she played in Australia back in 2021. And just your reminder, uh, or excuse me, going into that event, she had 
won Doha. She had made quarterfinals in Stuttgart in Madrid and was playing really good tennis prior to injuring herself going into the press conference in Roland Garros. And, you know, again, you think about 20, you go all the way back to 2022, what she was able to do at the Slams last year. It was disappointing. First round exit in Australia, second round Roland Garros, third round Wimbledon, fourth round US Open. But it did get progressively better as she got progressively healthier. And that's the key thing. I think she looks healthy. We know what she's capable of with that power tennis when she's serving her best. And right now she is. She's got a serious test in round number two as she's going to take on a thriving Jung Chin-Wen, who's going to be on everyone's dark horse list, mine included, entering the 2023 Australian Open. You look for Chin-Wen, who... Beats Annette Conteve round one last week before losing a straight set fun match against Victoria Azarenka, second set that was on serve until five all in the second. This week wins over Ripak, 0-0, a wild card in round one qualifying, 7-6 in the third over a top 50 player in Potapova in final round qualities. Now a 4-6-6, 4-6 love come from behind win over Shelby Rogers, where she was able to keep pace with Rogers from a pace perspective. She was a little bit overwhelmed by Rogers' pace to start the match, but then she found her rhythm. She was the more fluid mover. Her serve won out in the end, and her fitness won out in the end. She faced just two break points, both of them coming early in the match and early in each set. She gets broken early in set number one. I believe she's down a set and a break, 2-1 in set two, and gets that break back right away. Her ability to absorb pace on the backhand wing, when she has time on the forehand, she hits through it so fluidly. Now, that forehand is a little bit bigger of a backswing, and Shelby, when she was able to connect with pace to that forehand wing of Jung Chin-Wen, it gave Chin-Wen problems. But that's the good sort of problem to have when you're 20 years old, and it feels fixable for Chin-Wen. And again, when she has time to set her feet, her power, her explosion, uh, pace that comes off her racket is non-negotiable. So that's a really fun second round matchup. And one of the things I think that matter because the winner of that match is going to be one spot higher than the other player on my dark horse list when we look on the WTA side of things coming up at this Australian Open. That said, again, some of the other noticeable uh, notable results and things to continue to watch for I think Belinda Bencic is playing really well. You know, I think she went one and one in her United Cup matches, a win over uh, over Putensiva, a loss to Iga Swiatek three and six, in what was a very competitive match. Kvitova uh, got a really, uh, excuse me, Bencic got a really good straight set win over Garbin Muguruza three and four, and I just continue to think she's moving better than she ever has in her career, and that confidence in her movement. Now when she's taking the ball early on the rise, it's not because she has to bail herself out of a of a defensive position. It's because she's there on time. She's beating you to the spot. She hits through her backhand so fluidly. You give her time on the forehand. She's going to explode through it. The first serve is elite. She's a top five hold percentage player on the WTA Tour. Yes, Garbin Muguruza is not playing her best, but that uh, she's playing better. And that match was on Benchich's terms. Three and four win there. Paula Pedosa, I thought was particularly notable. Four and three win over Annette Conteve. Pedosa just finally looked healthy. She was fluid. She was able to drive through the court more consistently than Annette Conteve was, though. 
I think Cantavese played really well. I know she's 0-2 to start the season, but 7-6 in the third. She lost to Junction Wen last week. 4-3, she lost to Bedosa in what was a really competitive straight set match. And there were moments when Cantavese caught fire, started taking the ball early on the rise, asserting herself. It was just harder for her to duplicate that pace consistently and replicate it in the way that Bedosa was able to. But that was a really competitive 4-3 and three match that absolutely could have been a round of 16 battle at the upcoming Australian Open. Keep your eye on Contave. Yes, 0-2, but it's a deceiving 0-2. Really good win from Amanda Nisimova, 5-3 and three over Ludmilla Samsonova. And Nisimova lost final round qualifying three sets to Teichman. She gets in as a lucky loser and gets a really good win over, obviously, uh, Samsonova, who's had a ton of chances in her early matches the 5-1 lead against Sabalenka last week you know was up early on Anisimova here this week but two tough losses again I don't hold them against her good win for Anisimova though outside of that Kudermatova I guess the three-set win over Vika I mean Kudermatova's serve is a problem there's a reason she's a top 10 server right now via hold percentage according to tennis abstracts leaderboard uh, and your eyes match up with that when you see it because, again, her ability not only to hit her spots, the slice out wide on the do side, flat into your body, or, you know, slice away from you down the tee on the ad, sets up her first forehand, which she explodes through. She's moving better. She's controlling her pace on the move much better than she did early in her career. She's just generating good depth without feeling the need to gun the ball. That was a really competitive three-set match between her and Vika. Vika is fit. Vika is serving well. Vika is hitting confidently. Her first step's not what it was a decade ago, but it's like half a step off, and she's much smarter in beating you to the spot now, takes the ball on the rise down the line at exactly the right moments. Again, that was a second week of Australia quality match, and it was a first-rounder here in Adelaide, so two players I would certainly continue to keep my eyes on. The last one that was notable, Danielle Collins, 2-4 and four over Karolina Pliskova. Collins was moving the ball so well against Pliskova. She was never hitting more than two balls in the same direction. She was beating Pliskova to the spot. She was landing her first serve with success. And when she lands that first serve, she's just a different player uh, in her service games because the second serve is very, dare I say, compromised. It was really good tennis. Again, that was a fun one. Uh, certainly um, something to keep your eye on. And as you move forward in the draw, look, it's a loaded second round. I know the top three seeds, I believe, all pulled out of the event. But Caroline Garcia taking on Sinyakova. Sinyakova 4-2 in their career head-to-heads. But obviously, Garcia winning the WTA Tour Finals was the number one server on the WTA Tour last season. That serve is non-negotiable. When she's landing it, it allows her to be that much more aggressive on the return of serve. Take it almost on top of the service line. I'm interested to see Garcia get her season rocking and rolling in what is a tough matchup. And then... The real interesting one is Krachikova Kasatkina. Kasatkina loses a three set match to Noskova last week. Look, Krachikova is going to apply consistent pressure as well. And obviously, Kasatkina was a top 10 player, made the WTA Tour finals last season. But Krachikova started last year, I think, reached quarterfinals in Australia, got injured, found her form, winning Osterva at the end of the year, gets a first round win over Ali Risk. Ali Risk Armitage, excuse me. 
look, I mean, from a matchup perspective, Krachikova's got the weapons. She's got the movement. She's got the willingness to move forward and take advantage of the defensive court positioning of Kasakina. She's got the ability to take that return early on the rise anytime she gets the hanging curveball that is that second serve. If Krachikova wins the match in a definitive straight set fashion, she should also be on a lot of dark horse lists come the Australian Open because her ceiling is that good. We've seen her win a Grand Slam. Obviously, not that long ago, shout out the 2021 French Open. And she made a ton of second weeks at slams that season as well. Again, successful Australia to start last year before she got injured. If she's in top form, she has to be on the dark horse list, maybe even your top five contender list. Again, she's going to be tested. Kasakina first, then she'd face the winner of Kvitova Junction Wen. So we'll look at some bigger weapons to see how her movement holds up against that sort of pace. Krzykova is actually the underdog, according to the Tennis Abstract Singles Forecast, 46.5% to Kasakina's 53.5. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And right now there's no clear-cut favorite in Adelaide. And I think that's indicative of the fact that the numbers say it, the eye tests say it, outside of Iga, it's really anyone's world. Fascinating, Kvitova, 15.3% favorite according to the numbers. My eyes would say that as well. Bencic, 14%. Collins, 13%. Garcia, 11.6%. Bedosa, 10.6%. Kudermatova, 8.5%. That's indicative of how close the margins are statistically between all these players at the top of the WTA rankings. And again, speaks to how fantastic this Adelaide 2 draw is. This is the event that matters most in week number two of the 2023 season. Of course, there are still four other events I want to touch on here on today's show. We'll stay in Adelaide, host two back-to-back dual-site events. You love to see the men and women competing in one location. You love to see it back-to-back weeks as well. That's just an outstanding start to the year for everyone living in Adelaide, all the tennis fans there. But I want to break down the men's draw now. I want to talk about, again, the things that matter as you look at this event. There are a couple of players who I'm very much looking forward to seeing them compete in particular Andre Rublev after a disappointing three-set loss to Roberto Bautista Gu. I believe he was up a set in a break. I think he was up a set in 2-1 uh, in their first round match in Adelaide last week. He loses that match in three sets. Now he gets the hometown favorite, Tanasi Kokonakis, who I believe is fi- uh, defending title-winning points from last year. And Kokonakis, a testy three-set battle in the best way against fellow countryman Alexi Paparin in round number one. Big forehand pace in that Rublev-Kokonakis match. Two guys that aren't that dissimilar. Rublev, a little more pace from the baseline. Kokonakis, certainly a little better feel, a little more comfortable on the serve. Rublev, a little more consistent, certainly on the backhand and the return. But that's a fun match, and that's a test for Andre Rublev, a match, again, he would have to win to get to the second week of the Australian Open. Fascinating to see that one. I love watching Kokonakis play in Australia. Talk about a guy. Tiafo is the most charismatic player in all of tennis, but Kokonakis' ability to engage a crowd, particularly a home country crowd, it's second to none. He just makes the atmosphere enjoyable. He makes the fans feel guilty if they don't participate, if they don't support him. And obviously, given all the injuries that he's had, his story to see him competing consistently inside the top 100 is a win within itself. But I'm really excited for that Rublev-Kokonakis match. I'm imagining it'll be a night match in Adelaide, which means it'll be early morning for those of us here in the United States. Uh, That said, again, what else matters? This draw, you're looking more for dark horse contenders than anything else. Pablo Carreño Busta, 
set to take on Sunwoo Kwan, Kwan winner over Thomas Mahach uh, in round number one. Carreño Busta kicking off his season this week in Adelaide, obviously, is a guy who has made round of 16s at countless hard court majors, wins the Canada Masters title last year. Always going to be fun to see his form early on. You know, you look at some of the guys I would traditionally have as dark horses, particularly given how they finished 2022. Emil Rusevori, tough three-set loss, but it's to a, a guy who, if he makes the second week, given a three-out-of-five-set physicality of best-of-five-set hardcourt tennis, don't be shocked. Michael Emer made countless quarterfinals and further to end last season. Immer currently sitting at number 69 in the rankings, two off his career high, 24 years old. Guys, just again, an absolute warrior, asks every question of you point in, point out, sneaky good pace on that backhand wing. We'll take it early on the rise, beat you to the spot, can absorb pace extraordinarily well also. Three-set win over Emil Rusevori, who played much better down the stretch in that match, just didn't quite have the patience or physicality to knock off Emer. Uh, again, Emer, the subcategory, you know, again, he's not a top-tier dark horse, but he's a guy who, if you see him in the round of 16, if he upsets, say, 18th-seeded Roberto Bautista Gu, that shouldn't shock anyone. Or if he beats Cranio Busta here at this event, honestly, that shouldn't either. And look, talk about if you like athleticism, Emer's going to take on Mackie McDonald. Mackie, 5-5 five and five win over Dan Evans. Obviously, Mackie lost Evans. I say, obviously, Australian Open five-set match. Very fun first rounder, I want to say, from 2020 or 20. I think it was 20 and not 21. But look, when Mackie's healthy, taking the ball on the rise, asserting himself, he just he puts you under pressure. And so, again, that's a very athletic match. Again, if Mackie, we've seen Mackie in a second week of a major before, so it shouldn't shock you. He's always played well in Australia, dating back to that fantastic match, not just against Evans, but against Grigor a few years prior. The winner of Mackie Emer gets the spot at, at one spot higher in the second tier dark horse race. Karen Hatchinov, uh, a good first round win for the seven, uh, the three seed. Excuse me, and and by that win, I mean he gets a bye, but he's going to take on now Mark Andre Husler, who did get a nice three set win over Arthur Rinder Kanesh. Husler up to a new career high in the live rankings. Big serving lefty. That's just a tough out against, regardless of the opponent. Here's your fun second round match in Adelaide on the men's side. Tommy Paul versus Jack Draper. That's top tier dark horse status. Winner of that match. I'm going to have as a dark horse getting to the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. Draper, obviously, the rising, I believe now, 22-year-old lefty out of Great Britain. Uh, 4-2 win over Lorenzo Sanego. Tommy looked excellent in his 4-5 and five win over Chris O'Connell. He looked a little stronger. Hasn't put on that much weight, though. He just looked lean. He looked aggressive. Clearly, the mindset he's developed of, hey, if I get a look at a forehand, it's time to turn into it because he has a weapon of a forehand when he is aggressive with it. Sometimes he just gets a little too passive. He was not passive against Chris O'Connell. That was a great win. A lot of athleticism, a lot of consistency in that Paul Draper match. I'm very much looking forward to it. Tommy, with his backhand, matches up well against left season. He'll enjoy the pace that Draper injects. So that's very much a dark horse contender status sort of match in that Adelaide round of 16. That's your bottom half of the draw. 
Top half, RBA yet to get in action. He'll take on lucky loser Robin Hasso. Got a three-set win over last week's title winner in India. Excuse me, finalist Benjamin Bones Z. Uh, you had John Millman, three-set win in what was a physical battle against Ramos. Davidovich Fokina, two and six over Brandon Nakashima. Brandon got off to a slow start, but it was just one of those days where ADF's athleticism, the the sheer ability of multitude of things he can do on the court sort of thrived. So I suppose slight ding to the Davidovich Fokina's dark horse status, who's just always a wild card in every event he plays. Better performance from Kasminovich in his straight set win over Kyle Edmund. But again, you look at this draw, not quite as exciting as the women's side. Again, Paul Draper, that's a, tier, a dark horse tier contender match. Mackie Emer, one tier lower in the dark horse contender match. How does Karenio Busta look to start his season? Rublev, how does he bounce back? Those are the big questions, the things that matter as you look at the ATP side of things in Adelaide. As of right now, Rublev, 27.7% favorite, according to the Tennis Abstract Singles Forecast. Then you have RBA 15-3, Karenio Busta 12-30, Hatchinov 11-8, then a drop-off to Tommy Paul at 8.8%. With that said, to move on to the other events we have going on at the tour level this week, you've got the WTA action happening in Hobart. Fun first-round affair, certainly in Marie, Marie Bozhkova, excuse me, Marie Bozhkova, as I learned by listening to her WTA player profile, Bozhkova, a fun first set, 6-2 and two win over a now back and healthy Jacqueline Christian, and I love the pop of the Christian forehand, how heavy that ball is, her willingness to take the ball early, use her athleticism to explode through the court, but... No one moves quite like Boshkova, who just is always going to track down three extra balls per rally. Ask that question of you. Use her hitch in her backhand to slap down on that backhand, but create better pace than you expect. She's a great volleyer, sneaky pace on the serve. It's a good start to the season for Boshkova, who obviously, when you add qualifying results, finished third in win percentage amongst top 50 players on the WTA Tour last season and is looking to cement her spot not only in the top 50, but can she make a top 25 push given where she is in the rankings, how few points she has to defend proportionally to the events she's going to be able to play now with her ranking. This is a big opportunity on the calendar for Boshkova to make a top 20 push. And, you know, again, Christian came out very hot came out swinging, took Boshkova a second to adjust to the pace, but once she did, she was able to not only play outstanding defensive tennis, but counterpunch as well. She's not a dark horse because I just don't think she can beat four players who can overwhelm her with pace consecutively, but she can beat two of them. She can get to the round of 16. If she's not seeded, then maybe she becomes as one of those, you know, again, dark horses in the sense of like like we talked about with Tommy and Draper of like, oh, okay, she popped into a round of 16, a quarterfinal. That shouldn't shock anyone, but she's your top seed. Second seed, Elisa Mertens knocked out by Marina Zanevska. Four and four. I said this last year. I'll say it again. Zanevska just so solid off of both wings. I said she was your litmus test for being a top 100 player. Zanevska right now at number 87. I know when we talked about it last year, the splits of her rankings versus players ranked outside the top 100 versus inside the top Top 100 were indicative of that. She was just rock solid today. Moved extraordinarily well, but I think she's going to be underdog against Sonia Ken in the wild card who earned a 2-2 two two win over Ju Lin. I'm telling you, I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. Kennan played top 50 tennis in a 4-4 four four loss against Coco Goff in Auckland. You look at the draw she's got. She plays Zinevska next, then the winner of Kalanina and Tatiana Maria, neither of whom has an overwhelming weapon. 
she could potentially play Bernardo Pera in the semifinals and then maybe a, a match against Bozkova, who doesn't have the biggest weapons either, and things could be on Kennan's terms in the final. This is a perfect warm-up draw for Kennan entering Hobart. And even if she, you know, let's say she goes on and wins this event and then loses first round of the Australian Open, I actually think winning five matches this week against top 125 opponents re-reminding herself and re-establishing herself as just an unequivocal top 75 sort of player on the WTA tour. That's the first step in the Sonia Cannon rehabilitation tour. That is this 2023 season. And I'm telling you, she was striking the ball so cleanly against Goff. She did it again, overwhelmed Julin, who just did not have the weapons, the athleticism to hang with Cannon's arsenal of weapons at her disposal. This draw is opening up really well for Kennan. And if she does win this event, again, that's a lot of match play before the start of the Australian Open. But it absolutely creates a scenario where she's just playing top 50 tennis again. And she's confident in herself. And how good can she be at the Australian Open? Well, she won the freaking title back in 2020. So keep an eye on Sonia Kennan, who I do think is going to have a bounce back season here in 2023. Again, some of the other players you keep your eye on. Putenseva, always interesting. Feels like feels like this is the tournament for physicality. Players like Putenseva, Davis, Perez, as Diaz, Kalanina, the lefty Bernarda Pera, who gets back to her winning ways, 4-4 four and four win over Madison Brangle. You know, again, as of right now, Boshkova, 26.5% favorite. Then it's Kalanina, 16-9. Then it's really the rest of the field all within relatively even percentages. Yasmin Bonaventure, uh, who was a semi no finalist last week, no semi finalist before getting knocked out, I believe by either Goff or Masarova. Who remembers things at this point? Um, she earns a good first round win uh, over Zadanzik in three sets, so she's playing well right now. Certainly, keep your eye on Bonaventure. And then Wang Xinyu, the talented young Chinese player uh, who starts her gets her first big win of the season as a lucky loser, four and five over Gadecki. The tough results, obviously, round number one, Sloane Stevens, two and two, knocked out by Lauren Davis. Stevens just didn't have any rhythm, and that's back-to-back first-round losses for Stevens, who last week lost a straight-set match to eventual finalists. That I do remember, Rebecca Masarova, three and six, a match that aged well, given Masarova's week, but... It was a tough loss for her against Davis, considering she made 62% of her first serves. She won fewer than 50% of her uh, service points for the match. She served eight total times. She was broken in five of her eight service games. There just wasn't a ton of rhythm. She looked a little aimless at times on court. And it's, you know, again, for Sloan, who can do so many different things when she's playing her best, not only generate pace, but play with defense of play defensively, counterpunch, do all sorts of things, dominate with her first serve. She just there was no there was no rhythm there was no plan A. Here's what I want to do. It was too much searching for that plan A and trying B, C, and D. And unfortunately, there's just not a ton of rhythm for Stevens. Again, there's a big difference between losses to Masarova and a two and two loss to Lauren Davis for Stevens than there is in the zero and two losses seven six in the third to Chin Wen and four and three to Bedosa that Conteve had. Not to compare the two players, but just to explain why I'm a little bit more concerned about Sloan's week than I am. Uh, a, our first two weeks than I am about Conteves. That said, again, that's your second WTA event happening in Hobart Boshkova, certainly uh, the favorite, given what we saw from her at the end and throughout. 
the course of 2022. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. The other ATP Tour level event happening this week is in Auckland. Pretty stable so far on, on uh, in terms of the draw we've seen unfold now. We did have a couple of seeds knocked off, but define upset for me as you look at these results. Certainly haven't seen top seed Casper uh, Ruud, second seed Cam Norrie kick off their campaigns yet, but we did see uh, third seed Diego Schwartzman also receiving a bye, I believe the fourth seed, I forget whom it was, but pulled out of this event. So here's the thing. Fifth seed, uh, Sasha Bublik knocked out of the event. Three and four lost to him against David Goffin, who moved the ball really well throughout the course of this match. That said, I don't see it, you know, again, Sasha Bublik losing a first-round match, not, in my opinion, considered a significant upset. You had 6-seed John Isner, 6-7, He got knocked out by qualifier Gregoire Barrer. Barrer had a, a set point in the first set, ultimately uh Gave it away. Isner was up a mini break twice in the second set breaker. Ultimately gave that away. Barrera got the one break of serve in the third set. That defined the match. It was indoors, so you would have expected Isner to perhaps pull away there. But I think this is the sort of year we're going to see for Isner. There will be some really good weeks, and then there will be some some duds mixed in throughout. Um, the other upset, seventh seed Sebi Baez, who got knocked out 7-6-6-1 to dear friend of us, uh, of our shows here at Cracked Rackets, 20-year-old and former NCAA singles champion while at the University of Florida, Ben Shelton. Look, the match moved indoors, given the rain we see in Auckland. Ben Shelton won three consecutive indoor challengers to end the 2022 season. We know how good his serve looks when he's playing indoor hardcourt tennis. The other thing, Baez has now lost 17 of his last 18 matches. That's nuts. And it has been a tough transition on the quicker surfaces, grass courts, hard courts for Baez at the tour level, despite the clay success that we saw him have at the challenger level, translating so well to the ATP tour. But Look, Ben had multiple break points, set points at the end of the first set, wasn't able to convert them, gets a break right away to set number two. What was interesting, and we're Ben Shelton scholars here, so I have to spend two minutes on this. What was interesting with Shelton is that he had some difficulties playing with his forehand when it was challenged by pace, and that's something we expected for Shelton going on to make this jump onto the, into tour-level matches because he does have a little bit of a hitch in his forehand backswing. That grip is a little bit extreme, and you know there's a lot of racket movement, and when the ball's coming faster at you, you just don't have as much time for that much extemporaneous movement. Hopefully I used that word correctly. Um, the point is, it was interesting to see Baez, when he chose to be aggressive, attack through the forehand of Shelton and pressure that wing with pace, not the backhand of Ben. And I actually thought Ben's backhand held up really well when pressured by pace. I thought he played the Baez forehand to his backhand exchanges about as well as could be expected. That said, Ben's serve is already top 25 level. When Ben has time on the forehand, it's his heavier of the two balls. It's the more extreme of the two shot, uh, more, more, uh, 
more more impactful, I should say, of the two balls that he hits. It drives through the court more successfully. You're never quite sure where it's going. And then he's a comfortable volleyer who not only has good feel at the net, but knows where to go and what to do with the first volley, which of course is half the battle. He's comfortable exploding through the overhead, particularly when playing indoor hardcourt tennis. Ben looked like a top 50 player today, and he gets, I think, just his fourth tour-level win of his career. Of course, it's all free points for Ben Shelton at this point because he didn't have any pro matches on his resume between January and May last year. And as such, he's up to number 89 in the ATP rankings. Earns another win, he'll be up to 86. Let's just say, God willing, he wins the title this week. And I say God willing because, boy, would it be great for the show. He'd already be up to number 53 in the rankings. You look at the draw this week in Auckland. Obviously, Rude, Nori would be heavy favorites over Shelton, even if he were to make, uh, even if the the matches, excuse me, were to remain indoors due to rain. But Shelton's got Quinton Halise next, who obviously made, what was it, seven challenger finals last year. I think 11 different quarterfinals inside the top 70 did what Shelton did through the back half of the season, but for the duration of the year, obviously played Djokovic extraordinarily well in their matchup last week in Adelaide. Halise, Great serve, great forehand. He'll be able to put some pressure on Shelton with pace through that forehand wing. But that's it. absolutely a winnable match for Shelton, who's a 58.8, uh, 58.5% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract. And then he would face the winner of Jensen Brooksby and Diego Schwartzman. Schwartzman went under 500 in tour-level matches at the ATP uh, uh, in the 2022 season. And, you know, again, if it's outside, it's one thing. But indoors... Baez hits a little bigger. There's a little more drive on his ball. Schwartzman far more consistent and a little bit better at opening up angles. But it's not that dissimilar of a matchup from the Sebi Baez matchup for Shelton uh, if he were to play Schwartzman. His serve would certainly give Schwartzman as good of a returner as he is. All sorts of problems just with the height of that Shelton ball and how high it kicks up. Or Brooksby. And boy, Shelton versus Brooksby. Hottest thing of 2021 versus the hottest thing of 2022. That would be a really fun quarterfinal matchup. So, again, I'm locked in. It's a really fun bottom half of the draw in Auckland. Of course, you've got other Americans elsewhere. JJ, a lot of NCAA champions. Uh, ben Shelton in this portion of the draw. Marcos Giron in this portion of the draw. Two former college tennis number ones. JJ Wolf, who earned a straight set victory over Adrian Manorino in what was a really fun match in round number one. Wolf's just moving better. He's more fluid, better depth, better elevation on his backhand to create that depth. He's found a neutral ball, which he's so comfortable hitting on that forehand wing to set up the ball where he goes Mach 12, whatever direction. Wolf, Giron, two former college number ones. That's a round of 16. Lachetka, the weapons we saw at the next-gen finals last year, the serve, the forehand, they look real. He gets a win. He qualifies for this event. He gets another tough test now in Cam Nori, who was one of your biggest winners, certainly, of United Cup. I mean, again, that's a really fun... Tell me the least interesting player in this section. Shelton, Halise, and particularly with Halise's run over Djokovic, uh, uh, excuse me, success against Djokovic, even in a loss last week, he feels a little bit more mainstream. Shelton, Halise, Brooksby, Schwartzman, Wolf, Giron, Lachetka, next-gen finalist last year, and Nori. That's a superb bottom half of the draw in Auckland. Top half, again, a little bit more inconspicuous. No, that's not correct. But you look at the top half of the draw. Shout out to our guy, KP Panu, 
Columbus State's finest. Played a really good match, the former D2 champion, again, Richard Gasquet, but Gasquet ultimately advances. I mean, look, there's only one seed left on the top half. It's Casper Ruud, who faces Laszlo Jura, three-set winner over Munar, in an indoor hardcourt match that... Everyone was uncomfortable, including each of the players. You know, Lestien, Beret, Sosa, Gasquet, Goffin, who's going to take on a very much informed Chris Eubanks. And by the way, Eubanks, with all of his success playing indoor hardcore challenger tennis to end last year, he had to have loved that move indoors in his first round win over Ugo Umbera, 6-6 six and six win for the big serving former Georgia Tech Yellow Jacket All-American. Is, is there a world where we get a Shelton Eubanks who played, what, two Challenger finals to end last year, back-to-back Charlottesville, Knoxville. I don't think they played in Champaign, but Charlottesville, Knoxville. Are we going to get an ATP final between the two of them? Should I make that joke now before anyone else does on Twitter? All I ask to our listeners is if it happens and someone makes that joke, just please remind them that I made it here on Tuesday, January 10th. I, as a Nostradamus, foresaw it prior to and manifested it's actually happening but again that's the action going on in Auckland this week those are your four ATP WTA tour level events of course we've also got Australian Open qualifying that's going on and rather than run through every Australian Open qualifying result that's unfolded thus far just want to quickly talk about the highlights for me again who are some of the big names to watch for well Ashlyn Kruger who's a former USTA girls 18 San Diego Diego champion, got a main draw wild card into the U.S. Open. Big hitting young American, who's had a ton of ITF success, has worked her way towards the top 100. She gets a three-set win over Jeannie Bouchard. Elizabeth Mandlick, who came on strong at the end of last year, she gets a three-set first-round win in qualifying. Anne Lee, who's in qualifying here at this event, three uh, straight-set win, 3-1 and one in her first-round match. You know, in terms of the Americans who uh, have been on the radar, Alicia Parks, who's the number one seed in qualifying, she got a 6-6 six and six win in her first-round match, hit 15 aces, albeit against 10 double faults. You know, those are the the four Americans I would say you keep your eyes on most. Oh, Katie Volley, that's three-set win, I should say, as well. She's close to making a top 100 debut. Those are the young Americans who are still in that qualifying portion of the rankings. Robin Montgomery as well, a first-round winner, who I think can all be top 100 players, and I think are players you should keep your eyes on as you move forward in terms of the other notable results. Alleged incoming NC State freshman, I say alleged because Diane Schneider, who wins 5-0 in the first round of her Australian Open qualifying campaign, if she makes the main draw of the Australian Open, she'll be on the precipice of top 100. I mean, she's already top 115 in the world. She makes the main draw. It's going to be tough to justify coming to college, even if she really wants to. Of course, it was a good start for the Fruvertovas. I believe Brenda certainly got a first-round win. I don't recall if Linda did in this event either. But again, certainly you keep your eyes on the Fruvertovas. Tough loss for Noskova. Three-set loss for her. She was not playing nearly as well as she did uh, in Adelaide. But coming out of Australia, even though she's not in the main draw, it's a massive win for Linda Noskova to have made her first Australian, uh, to make her first WTA Tour level final, and now she's a top 75 player. So the whole world is open to her for the rest of this season. She's not going to have to play qualifying in any other events. Sophie Chang knocked out sixth seed on Yaconia. Uh, obviously, I still have on Yaconia stock, so seven, six, and the third. Tough loss for me. Good win for Chang. Uh, again, a lot of fun women's singles matches still to be played. We'll continue to update uh, you on the big and most notable results throughout the course of the week. 
on the men's side, a couple of Americans having some success, and there are tons of college players, by the way, American, not American. Shout out Adam Walton, who got a really impressive three-set win in round number one of qualifying. But Brandon Holt of U.S. Open fame last year, uh, he and former USCL American, of course, three-set win over Radu Albot in round number one of qualifying. You look at some of the other Americans who have competed thus far, uh, certainly it was nice to see Dennis Kudla after how cheerful he was on the bench for the Americans in United Cup, one-in-one win over the former Junior Australian Open, or U.S. Open champ Omar Jessica in round number one of qualifying. Mitchell Kruger, first-round win in uh, uh in qualifying as well. Other than that, pretty tough for the Americans in at least round number one of the event, of course. Still some good college players we love here at Crack Rackets having some success. Shout out to our guy. Oh, uh, not Emilio, but no, yeah, Emilio Nava, first round win. That's another American who had some success. But shout out to Alexi Galarno, the former NC State All-American. Good tournament for NC State. Two first round qualifying winners in Galarno and Schneider. Michael Moe. I, I just like Michael Moe. I'm 100% certain he won. I just couldn't find his result. That's another American. Shout out to him on his recent engagement. 1-0 over former Junior Australian Open Boys Singles Champ and fellow American Bruno Kuzahara. Um, you look at, again, Bradley Klon. Shout out to our guy, BK. Six and th- a three and six win. I'm going to text him right now and say congratulations on the victory. Um, but... Yeah, Dom Stricker, who certainly had a good run at the next-gen finals last year, making the semifinals. He gets a first-round victory in qualifying. Um, again, I mentioned the Adam Walton win. Guys like Rodionov, Andreev, Bergs, El- Elias Emer, they all had success in round number one of qualies as well. So we'll keep our eye on all of that action as it continues to unfold. That said, that's your look at what matters here in week number two of this 2023 season. Of course, uh, we will continue to update you day in, day out on this show on all the happenings that are ongoing events. Of course, if you're looking for 2023 Australian Open preview content, head on over to our Great Shot podcast feed. We'll cover all sorts of topics, contenders, dark horses, Americans, draws, and so much more. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he will be doing day in, day out, making all of that content happening uh, happen. Excuse me. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest items with that said for our fantastic super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you know what we say that's the break and we will talk to you all tomorrow thanks everyone <laughs>